Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the program. <laughs> the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is not an Earth book never published on Earth, and until the terrible catastrophe occurred, never seen or heard of by any Earthman. Nevertheless, a wholly remarkable book. In fact, it was probably the most remarkable book ever to come out of the great publishing houses of Ursa Minor, of which no Earthman had ever heard either. Not only is it a wholly remarkable book, it's also a highly successful one, more popular than Celestial Home Care Omnibus, better selling than 50 th- more things to do in zero gravity, and more controversial than Oolong Kalufid's trilogy of philosophical blockbusters, Where God Went Wrong, Some More of God's Greatest Mistakes, and Who Is This God Person Anyway? In many of the more relaxed civilizations on the outer eastern rim of the galaxy, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has already supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom, for though it has many omissions and contains much that is apocryphal, or at least wildly inaccurate, it scores over the older, more pedestrian work in two important respects. First, it is slightly cheaper. And secondly, it has the words Don't Panic inscribed in friendly letters on its cover. Uh, yeah, we thought we'd do Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because uh, it's December and we want something lighthearted. Uh, I'm Matthew Campbell. Joining me this month... Alex Hoseason. Danielle Young. Charlotte Barfield. So uh, I guess we're obliged to start with you, Charlotte, because... Um, <laughs> After reading an awful lot of depressing books for the podcast, you wanted something fun and lighthearted, and so we suggested this as a comedy. And then it features an awful lot of people dying. Yeah, that was my issue with it. So yeah, I read a lot of very depressing books. Um, I share an office with Alex, so I've heard a lot about very depressing books. So I asked the, the Alex and Matt if we could maybe do a fun book, and they suggested Hitchhiker's Guide, which I had actually never read, and I'm the only one out of the four of us who'd never read it before. And so I, I listened to the radio show, actually, I didn't read the book itself, and basically the first thing that happens is a mass genocide on Earth, and then not long later we hear about the the Earth, um, the planet being pocketed into a black hole like a ball on a snooker table and killing 10 billion people. So yeah, I thought... Great, this is uh, the only happy book apparently in sci-fi and <laughs> already about 17 billion people are dead. So yeah, I mean, uh, Handmaid's Tale was looking pretty good really compared to this. <laughs> <laughs> it does it does veer back and forth between deadpan dark and the weird funny minutiae of the characters' lives. I actually found it in that way more realistic because lots of people die and then presumably being killed in a black hole wouldn't be particularly pleasant. Or having your earth knocked down and make a motorway, not particularly fun. But in I liked how many of the other characters weren't really that interested because it didn't affect them personally. So they just weren't interested. And I thought that that was actually really quite realistic. I mean, if you just look at the world today, plenty of people being killed in Syria on a daily basis, but much of the world doesn't care because it doesn't affect them on a daily basis. Which comedian was it said, tragedy is when I cut my finger, comedy is when you fall on an open sewer and die? Yeah. <laughs> it, does it, it, it does it two ways, right? I mean, one way it makes sure that most of the characters are kind of raging egomaniacs, right? And 
Also, all the larger-than-life characters who can easily steal a scene or need to draw attention from the way that pe people have just died are raging egomaniacs. And the other thing it does is it switches scale, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, that kind of... I think that's kind of one of the main points of the book is a, is a kind of question of scale, right? So, you know, he says, well, if you're drawing it out over a kind of galactic scale or whatever else, then who really cares? Right? And so that's kind of one of the tricks you see again and again in the book, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, it starts right from the beginning with... Arthur's house, right? Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Don't worry, they haven't started yet. It's probably just your house being knocked down. But even before that, right, I mean, the, the prologue gives this account of this woman and then mm. right at the end just says, this is not her story. You know, and, and, and in some ways I quite like that about the book. I mean, well, in some ways. I, I really like it about the book. I mean, I've, I've said repeatedly on the podcast before that kind of, I think forced happy endings are kind of a bit of a waste of time. Um, and I think this book takes that trope apart completely. Um, yeah, I particularly like that woman because doesn't she come up with like she's the next best thing since Jesus, basically. Yeah. <laughs> she, 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 she solves world issues. She's going to make everyone happy. We're going to live happily ever after. And then she gets killed. When the earth is blown up. When the earth up is blown and... up and no one even knows her, let alone but... that story. And I, I think that's quite interesting yeah. because... You said about like forced happy endings. I can't remember what point I was going to make, but it was a good but one. <laughs> these are, but these are the, the problems we hear are problems of humanity, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, we're unhappy because only some of us have digital watches and we don't have enough money. The dolphins don't care. The mice don't care. Yeah. Um, it's entirely our problem, so of course no one else cares when the earth gets blown up. And I like how throughout all the books, because I kind of read them all, there's five, but I kind of read them all together, but it's not a, it's not a traditional story in that there's not really much of a quest, they're not, there's not many goals, like sometimes there are sort of very short-term ones that come up, but it isn't like, we need to go back and save Earth, and you sort of do realise that it's actually in a lot of different timelines and stuff, but it isn't that kind of, they're all just sort of trying to survive and ending up in these different experiences. And, and then also along the way, there's all kinds of social commentary that I think is really about people and Earth, but they use you know, aliens doing different things and that sort of thing. So I think my point about the woman was that she's clearly a very intelligent woman, right? She's come out with this grand scheme and no one else has managed to come up with it, and then she gets killed and no one cares. And this is presumably what happens on a daily basis in places like um, Syria, obviously, being a good example. Is that presumably some of the people who've been killed in Syria could have gone on to have done great stuff, but we will never know because we've not bothered to save them. Yeah. We've not bothered, we not even really tried to save them. But often the alien tragedies in the book, it's not that you people don't try to say them, just completely unaware yes, what I mean, of any yeah. concept of there's, there's the two alien battle fleets that try to attack Earth and they just get eaten by a small dog. Because yeah. <laughs> I think it's I think it's very much the sort of you said about egotistical, it's very the narcissistic, you know, I'm okay, I need to survive. I don't really care what anyone else is doing almost. But there are also things in the book where it's when people are trying to well people, I say people, I mean sort of alien species, whatever are trying to do things that they think will improve the universe or things for them, it, it also ends up being um, one of the worst things that happens. Like there's the, the cricketers who want to basically kill everyone else in the universe <laughs> once they learn about the universe, even though they themselves are quite polite. 
Um, so it's it's a good stand-in for sort of the British Empire kind of thing. But also the, the spaceship where it has basically, this planet has decided to send off essentially its working class off somewhere else. Um, but then you, because basically they want to get rid of these people because they think that they're sort of not good enough you to mean, be there. You mean but doers then, and thinkers but no middlemen. Yes. But then you learn that the planet that sent them away died of some, you know, virus that came about from phones not being properly wiped down or yeah. you know something and then you realize there's nobody to give you haircuts and that kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah I think he also takes shots at people sort of having these grand visions of creating perfect societies yeah. and how that ends up being actually much worse yeah. a lot of times. I mean I was kind of thinking over it like having reread it for the first time in quite a long time actually um, and the one thing I kept coming back to, and I decided, I summed it up in my head, and decided that, at least for this book, like, meaning is a trick of perspective. Yeah. yeah. Right? And it's, you always lose out to the higher perspective. Yeah. Right? And, and that's where the comedy comes from. But it's also where, you know, I mean, on the top of the running order, we've got happy question mark, right? I mean, <laughs> but I mean, you know, happy is, again, something that has meaning in it right yeah. so i mean it's it's quite it's nihilistic right i mean yeah in, in in some ways and it finds it tries to find some kind of re- redemption in that and i think it does mm-hmm. but at the same time it's also has this quite anti well extremely anti-religious sentiment underlying it and and that anti-religious sentiment is articulated against people finding meaning in religion not necessarily religion as such. well it takes the so science fiction is always going to have this problem in that, as far as we are so far aware, a religion is confined to a single planet. And therefore is, when you take another planet's perspective, functionally useless to them. And Hitchhikers very much takes that view. There's the entire civilization who believes they were sneezed out of the nose of a god. And they fear the coming of the great white handkerchief. But even other things like Slotty Bartfast placing the dinosaurs in the Earth's crust <laughs> one by, you know, when, when, they're, when they're remaking Earth, right? I mean, it's a... Again, it's it's the kind of the book reads quite um, I don't know what word I mean like staccato, right? Like the sentence is quite short. It's joke, 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 and then all of a sudden, you know, you've gone from making a joke about the absurdity of carrying a towel with you all the time to this thing at like kind of planetary or galactic scale, and it's just constantly it's quite dizzying in some ways. Yeah. Like it's constantly shifting perspective. It's quite tiring, actually. I found. One of the things I love most in the books is Agrajack, who is the the being that Arthur keeps killing through all of his different incarnations. And eventually, Arthur almost has to reckon with this, but escapes. Um, but Agrajack is one of the best sort of examples of that, because you do you encounter him before you know who he is a few times, with just like there's the bowl of petunias that you know, thinks not again with the sperm whale when they go crashing down to Earth. And it's basically... This Agrajag has been in every incarnation killed by Arthur Dent in the past, in the future. Like every time he exists, Arthur Dent kills him, but never intentionally. Um, and sometimes it's people trying to kill Arthur that kill Agrajag instead. And so it's an interesting way to play with perspective, where for Agrajag, obviously, this is the most important factor in his existence <laughs> is that Arthur Dent keeps leading to his death. But it doesn't register for Arthur at all. Yeah. And Arthur kind of sort of feels bad when he runs into him and Agrajag has the, you know, don't be alarmed, be very, very frightened, 
sort of warning and stuff. <laughs> and Arthur ends up getting away, and Agrajag ends up losing out again. But it is that's that perspective thing where you kind of think, he he doesn't care. He'll probably smash him as an ant tomorrow, and it won't. It he, it can't affect him. And it also does it. I mean, in that case, I mean, it does it across such a wide array of objects, right? You have monologues from sperm whales, comments from. Um, uh, bowls of petunias or vases of petunias or whatever. The speculation as to whether tea bags can think. You know, you have you have a long period of one book where a character spends a period as a lemon, like <laughs> you know. So I mean, all of these things, you know, and you, you have mattresses. You have the cow that people cut bits off or whatever while it stood there. I thought it was a pig, but yeah, oh, was it a pig? The, the pig that wants to be eaten. I think it's a yeah. cow in the book. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's just a difference in the. Which apparently there's quite a lot of difference in there, but yeah. um, you know, so it, it is quite. A, there doesn't seem to be many objects that would have, you know, haven't had that kind of attention paid to them, right? I mean, I guess the. Well, we can come back to Marvin, who is an object, I guess. But I guess the biggest manifestation of this perspective thing is, of course, the total perspective vortex, mm. the machine that shows you your place in the universe and is somehow powered by a cupcake. <laughs> it's just like uh, th- thanks Adam so you come up with this really profound philosophical like machine and then you know it's powered by a cupcake because we can't be serious for. <laughs> but of course they put Zaphod in it and uh, it doesn't work on Zaphod but then you figure out part of that is at least in the books it's um, actually a dupe because yeah. he's been protected from actually seeing himself in perspective in the universe and that kind of thing but I like how Adams sort of assumes that that would drive somebody crazy. Some people, that could lead them to enlightenment, but for him, he's saying most people are so... They think they're so important, and they have to think that, that they would go nuts if they realized how very unimportant they are. Yeah. Um, except for Zaphod's the most important thing in the universe, so <laughs> <just> misconstrued. <laughs> Isn't it quite a common kind of literary device in various things, that you kind of see yourself in the... Mm-hmm. You see yourself in the void or whatever? Yeah. And it comes up quite a lot, I mean... I think it comes up as like an enlightening tool, though, you know, and I think yeah, he's kind but it of seems saying... to go. It seems to go either way. I mean, there seems yeah. to be some kind of enlightenment type ones. Uh, as a, as a method of the later ones, I think tend to yeah. be kind of you'll go crazy. As a as a method of enlightenment, sure, but they literally have a machine in a room. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, this is Cerebro and yeah. X Men and you know all that kind of stuff. Now I've. I need to drop that in now. I thought of one example to back up my <laughs> hugely overgeneralized statement. I mean, like Bad Five and Star Trek do it as well, because like, yeah, we have this big important yeah, conversation, and then. But I mean, it's in Lovecraft. It's in. You know, I mean, Lovecraft definitely makes it up more. Yeah. But just just thinking, it's an interesting concept though, because I mean, there's many academics have imposter syndrome, right? So that's almost the opposite way around. Is that you consider yourself less important than you are in your work? Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I think many people naturally have to consider themselves more important which goes back to what we were saying earlier about ignoring the death of 10 billion people in a snooker game because actually to you you are the most important person because you know the meaning of life for you is to stay alive almost i mean it's also a natural thing that follows from growing up right like an important stage of maturation is realizing that there are other people which are independent of you as opposed to just being random externals kind of stimuli or whatever. I suppose it depends. You know, so I guess it just mirrors that, and it's, it's just this question of, well, how much of that can you actually handle? It depends on sort of what 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 way you're looking at something, doesn't it? You know, are you looking at it from your own survival point of view, in which case you are the most important person, or are you looking at it from a societal point of view, in which you're not the most important person? I mean, it's not present in the tome, but fundamentally it is a book about survival. Mm-hmm. It's about the last man 
not on Earth, but... <laughs> well, and I, I like how the book sort of um, gives you this idea that the universe doesn't care about what you care about. That doesn't necessarily mean you don't care about things or you shouldn't, um, because the characters who kind of... Like, the character who goes around because he's immortal and just insults everyone that's Indeed. ever existed in the universe... Um, you know, because he's kind of showing that if you don't care about anything, you're going to lead a miserable and prolonged existence. But also you need to keep the perspective that the, nobody else cares about what you care about. Um, there's actually, there is a sixth book that wasn't written by Adams because he died. And I think it was 2001 that he died. Yeah. But his wife um, kind of gave permission to somebody else to write a sixth one. And Ewan Culpa. Sorry? It was Ewan, it was Ewan Culpa. Yeah. And he, um, in that one, it kind of, the earth is sort of saved from being destroyed. But I think he actually captures the message of what Adam is kind of getting across. Because it sort of ends where Arthur is exactly where he wants to be with the people he cares about, as it should be. And then the Vulcans show, or the, the Vulcan show back up to destroy Earth again. Because it's kind of this, you don't, you don't get a happy ending because the universe doesn't care about what you care about. But... It doesn't mean that you don't kind of keep muddling through and caring about them anyway. Um, it's just, I like how it messes with what you usually get in narratives, which is things get wrapped up where it's kind of nothing does here. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think while a lot of the stuff in it is quite nihilistic, right? I mean, it tears down any idol that it comes across, but I think it's still quite a humanist book in that regard, yeah. right? But I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's a practical thing, yeah. right? For, Adams or whatever, you know, it's kind of a what you care about in front of you, and you know where you, where your towel is or whatever. But you know, the rather than a kind of divinely inspired humanism, yeah, which would have some kind of well, humanity as a category that exists, you know, across any length of time and space. Mm -hmm. Right, it doesn't allow that, but what it does allow the characters to do is care about the people that they come across or. Yeah. Or whatever, which I mean is 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 seems like a different of emphasis, difference of emphasis sometimes, but then you realise well actually, in a lot of regards it's kind of more consistent. And also the dolphins had their save the humans campaign that was Mankind thinks they're superior to the dolphins because they've achieved so much, New York and war and so on, and the dolphins have all just mucked around in the water having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he was a huge. Um, kind of biodiversity advocate, yeah. didn't he? Didn't he do that? Um, I, I forgot what the program's called because I saw Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them last night, and now that, that title stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so he dressed up Is as a rhinoceros. Is it last chance to see? Yeah. Is it last chance to see? But he might be. He dressed up as a rhinoceros. I think it was a rhinoceros, and like hiked up some. I want to say hiked too, but I don't think that was it. But it was. I mean, it was he. He was always trying to bring awareness to that sort of thing. And in his other writings, I mean, he was very much an outspoken atheist. Um, but he also he, he he had a way of putting things into perspective. Where it's like, you know, if you were people, sort of match themselves up to the world they live in and think it was made for them. He's like, but if you were a puddle, you'd do the same thing. Where you're yeah. like, obviously, this was intended for me. This hole is perfect. Like, it perfectly <laughs> captures me, and it, it's the perfect environment for me, and it's here on, intentionally, and it must have been. And he's like, but then you realize that, it, no, it just is a hole that the water happens in. So. I mean, it's interesting, because 
this is obviously part of this huge like cultural landscape, right? In the late seventies, so you have things like I mean, surely um, Cosmos must have been around this time. Yeah. So you've got Cosmos by Carl Sagan, and I, I mean, it is a. We were talking before the podcast about how we weren't entirely sure what to say about it, but I mean, if, if, if you're going to say anything about it, then it has to be that it is this huge cultural icon. Yeah. At least in Britain. I mean, I don't know how does it travel. Well, I yeah, I mean, I. I say looking at you. <laughs> well, I mean, I know lots of people who were into it in the U.S. and I mean, everybody I introduced it to ended up liking it a lot. So I think I think it still resonates because it's more. I mean, I do think it is sort of a critique of, I guess, Western humanity more than others. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there's lots people can pick up from anywhere. I mean, there's often. British sci-fi often has a sort of cult following among mm-hmm. United States fandoms. This, of course, this of course happened with Red Dwarf, mm-hmm. and there were multiple attempts to make an American Red Dwarf, and all the American fans hated it because it wasn't the British one. Mm-hmm. Does the Britishness feature filter into it? Does it feel British? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's something about how sort of yeah people are more restrained. They're not super emotional in the books. You know, you have things like Arthur when he's like Forger turning into a penguin. Stop it. You know, hell is South yeah. End. Yeah, yeah, it would be just the start of the book where Earth is destroyed, or his house is destroyed, and then Earth is destroyed. I mean, he's upset, but he's not having some sort of breakdown. Yeah. He carries on, yeah. yeah. It was interesting to know, because when they made the more recent film, which had a lot of strengths and a few weaknesses, um, it had a far more international cast than any other adaptation, mm-hmm. because the perception was an international movie. So Zayford is played by an American actor... Mm-hmm. Uh, Mos Def is black, and well, as you mentioned before, full prefect's ethnicity is not mentioned in the radio show or the book. One has to assume that to fit in like he did, he chose white male. That's what I presumed. I mean, he's he's a out of work actor from Guildford, and I'm not entirely sure when this is set, but really to be an out of work actor from Guildford in a sort of white in, in, a, in a male. Environment in a village in, in a village in England, you almost certainly are going to be white. Um, it doesn't really make any difference if he's not white, but it, it would be almost ineligible for him not to be white, right? Um, which I thought was an interesting one when I was thinking about the book because he chooses the name for prefect because he thinks he, cars are the dominant he, life. He form. thinks cars are dominant life, form, which makes sense really if you're looking down. But it's interesting that even though he thinks cars are the dominant life form, he picks. A white male persona to impersonate, and not just a white male persona, but a white male British southern English southern persona, which is basically the sort of high up the food chain as you can possibly go. So I thought that that was quite an interesting um, analysis of that. Yeah. Having said that, Mos Def's performance in the film is is one of the highlights. I mean, there's a lot of praise for Alan Rickman as Marvin and Martin Freeman as Arthur, but I loved Mos Def as full prefect. I think he's perfect. I seem to remember it being quite hard to follow the film. I mean, I mean, as in you could watch it if you'd read the book, but if you haven't read the book, you were going to have it, trouble. It, it does retain a lot of its randomness, right? Mm-hmm. So when they when the spaceship part of starship part of gold like does its infinite improbability ju- jump, it transforms into lots of random objects like a lemon and a rubber duck, and then just goes on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's as a visual gag, it's funny, but when you're watching film, you're sort of expecting a narrative to be laid out for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I did feel when I watch it. I remember it's been a long time, but I remember feeling like they were kind of cheating and assuming that the people who are going to see it are people who already knew the story. 
um, so they didn't kind of do some of the work in order to tell you what was going on because they yeah. knew you'd be able to read in what's supposed to have happened. Well, I remember watching it and finding it absolutely hilarious, but going with a friend who walked out thinking... What was that? Yeah, basically <laughs> thinking it was kind of a substandard Monty Python knockoff. I, I didn't go to see it and I hadn't read the book, so I mean, maybe it just wasn't advertised for people who hadn't. The book, maybe that was the advertising strategy. It had the, and let's be fair, because sci fi fans love snobbery. Um, geeks are the worst. To quote Kevin Smith, the definition of a geek is someone who dresses up as Spock, goes to a convention, and sees someone dressed as Chewbacca, and goes, Oh man, what a nerd. <laughs> um, and so a lot of the people didn't like subtle changes that were made. Mm-hmm. So the fact they made a trillion American was just apparently the worst thing, according to some of my friends. Mm-hmm. Because a tiny, meaningless thing had been changed, and therefore it wasn't what they'd read as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a nostalgia thing, right? Yeah. I just, this is probably too philosophical, but I was just thinking about the book and thinking there's something, it reminds me of something in Wittgenstein where he says, if a lion could speak, we couldn't understand him. And the the, the book is sort of doing that. It's messing with your understandings of what you might call, um, I guess, forms of life or like the agreements that we all sort of live with together in order to be able to get along where it's like you know if an alien is coming down they would think that cars are the dominant form of life and they you know there's all this stuff that they would just get completely wrong that we think is bizarre but once you sort of detach yourself from the perspective you realize that yeah it doesn't you know if you have no way of learning a language it doesn't help that you know it's a language you know that kind of thing i I think that brings us seamlessly onto the babel fish and yes. <laughs> Hitchhikers has many examples of sci-fi loves its hand wave technology. You have a technological problem and they'll just invent a random thing that fixes that for you. And Hitchhikers does that for comedic effect and it's very well done. Uh, Alex, you often have thoughts on technology and sci-fi and what it's doing. No, I mean, I think in some ways it was... So the hand wave technology thing, I, I know it gets on my nerves. It's always going to be there to some extent, but I think it does a better job. I mean, it's just a great send-up of that trope, yeah. right? So, you know, what would you run your immensely powerful, plot-relevant spaceship on? Well, let's run it on improbability, right? I mean, you know, it, it is a like, it, it, it's just a really solid send-up. I mean, but that's all it does. I, th- I think the other thing is, and I don't know how much of this is intentional because it's quite a character-focused book. I mean, it doesn't tell us much about the rest of the, the galaxy or whatever, right? Because it, it's so completely inconsistent yeah. mm-hmm. that you couldn't say anything about it. So, I mean, it, you know, my, my normal problem about the hand-wavy stuff is that it fails as world-building, right? But here there's... I mean, there is a world to build plot-wise, yeah. but here there's no world-building, right? It's just a, a, a series of... I mean, that, that, that certainly works with, say, the Vogon ships, where... Sci-fis occasionally make attempts to say how the engine is powered, or yeah, alloys are in the hull, or how a ship stays airborne. Hitchhikers makes no attempts to do this. Vogon ships hang in the hang in the air in exactly the same way that bricks don't. <laughs> Which is funny, but also like it tells us something about Vogon design philosophy, right? I quite liked this though, in some ways, because it was associated with me, because I don't know how an airplane stays up. If I'm honest, I don't. And I don't actually know how an engine works because I've never bothered to look this up, um, which is very bad on my part. Um, but still, I mean, so I, I don't know how it works on Earth, so why do I need to know how it works in space? 
And I, when I've read books before and they just get too bogged down in de- every single tiny little detail, that actually, okay, you tell me that this spaceship can travel at 10 billion years lights in a second, I'm going to be like, well, okay then. You know? the, uh, yeah. the, the Babel fish is well handled because it, it proves the existence of God because it's, like, it's a hand wave too far, right? Hmm. I should, I should revive that. I do know roughly how an aeroplane stays. It's some sense. Yeah, I, I'm not totally ignorant. I just I couldn't make an aeroplane. <laughs> it's good because you're flying us home. <laughs> <laughs> There's that other sort of technological convenience when they're, when they're leaving the restaurant at the end of the universe and they decide to steal a spaceship and yes. they steal the one that's pre-programmed on autopilot to crash into a star as a stunt for, is it disaster area, the <laughs> band or whatever. But then for some, for whatever reason, the trans, the teleporter or transporter is working on the ship, which you're sort of like, uh, you know. Well, in the radio show, they steal one that's pre-programmed to go home because they assume the pilot will be drunk. Mm. which is like almost a technology we can have, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, I'm drunk, take me home. That would be brilliant, right? It's basically like driverless cars that are going to come about. But doesn't, in the radio show, doesn't it end up in the middle of a battle? Yes, yeah. it turns out to be a uh, Frogstar battleship yeah. belonging to an Agamemnon general. They're the ones that evolved long arms to reach spoons and so on. And, mm. and they can't drink coffee. Yes. Yeah. I, <laughs> I can now reach the spoon, but I'm incapable of drinking the coffee. And in the book, it's like this band's stunt for their show is to have a spaceship crash into a star and explode and stuff. And stuff. And exploding an entire star for a, for a rock concert. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a critique of, like, sort of consumerism and mass entertainment and stuff that he, he kind of has in asides throughout where it's just a bit like... And there's a lot of... So, to what extent is their critiquing hedonism and to what extent is there just innocent good fun so it's like everyone goes and has dinner at the restaurant at the end of the universe and it doesn't matter the world's ending and you'll never meet yourself everyone gets hammered on pangolastic gargobasters um the gorgophrygian captain spent several years in a bath mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's a lot of people like engaging in idle pleasure in this book mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah. i guess zaphod steals a spaceship because he, he wants to <laughs> that's true really of western society though right i mean yeah. many people spend even people who work spend many of their years indulging in idle pleasure whilst living off the back of many non-Western societies who work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And tell yeah. themselves the cow wants to be eaten, yeah. the pig wants to be eaten. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, his, his, I, mean I, don't, I don't know whether it's, is it pleasure? I mean, because I, I thought it was humour, right? Like, mm-hmm. in the sense, like, the thing that he wants to maintain as a value throughout all of this. Because the he, he has a long... I, I said before the, I think before we switched the mic on, um, that he basically like he appears to have written down everything that he hates and then put that next to his writing pad or typewriter or whatever as, as he's writing the thing. But the one thing that he keeps coming back to over and over again is bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. The, like that is his absolute. Like that's where the line, like you know, if if there's any mention of bureaucracy in the book, you're then going to have. A solid three pages. The the the, the, <laughs> the planning notice was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet and disused stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign of the door saying "Beware of the leopard." Yeah, <laughs> things like one of my favourite characters in the books is Wonko the Sane. Yes. Who is a guy who's basically sort of retreated from any other beings. I think he is his wife, but like you, they go to his house and he. He lives, I think, if I remember right, on, like, beachfront property. But anyway, like, he's basically retreated from the rest of the universe because 
he had a box of toothpicks and there were instructions printed on the side and it was just too much for him. He was like, people are so, so stupid. He, he puts a lunatic, lunatic asylum padding on the outside of his house. Yes, to keep. And exterior brickwork on the inside of his house so that he is outside the asylum. Yes. And if we're the universe is inside. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I mean, I understand where that, that comes from because I've seen things like in the US, I saw once a curling iron that said, you know, not for use on eyelashes. And you're like, well, that means somebody did that, you know, or just things where you're kind of going, how many, you know, what are people doing? <laughs> I think of some of the bureaucracies. So Vogon bureaucracy is the worst, but Vogons themselves are awful. It also individually awful. Mm-hmm. And I think this is bad civilization creates bad people, right? Yeah, but I, I think, I don't know, like, because reading it, I mean, the characters are all rogues and... And, you know, whatever. You know, I think in that way it was almost like a kind of scream for help in terms of like, you know, please someone send some humour. Right? I mean, you know, even from like even the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? Which, you know, in the opening quote and everything else is, you know, by the sound of it largely wrong or, you know, incorrect or, you know, whatever, but is more fun than Encyclopedia Galactica, and that's kind of the point. Yeah. Right? So like all of those things that just seems to be the thing that he comes back to again and again. And I mean, there's some points in the book where it, I, I I agree with Charlotte in the sense that he gets a little bit um, overwhelming. No, not overwhelming, but it's it, it, there's just aspects of it which are done from such an obviously privileged position. Yeah. Um, in 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 quite a you know I mean this is like a kind of gap year student's wet dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> like. You know, so, and it is written, there's parts of it which take the banter a little bit too kind of, you know, the joke's ended, right? And and everyone's still guffawing and, and, and playing beer pong. Like, you know, I, I don't know. So, I mean, there is, there is an aspect of that. But I, I mean, he, he's quite smart guy. I mean, he's probably yeah. fully aware of that, right? Like, mm-hmm. but that's kind of the, where the darkness of the book comes in. I guess it, it, if we're, Going to have the, the fantasy of the book, this sort of leads us on to one of our other observations, which is for the second month running, this is a we've done a book which is this grand galaxy spanning adventure encompassing all sorts of civilizations and, and people, and the book is almost entirely devoid of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and just Trillian is the woman. Yeah, the role she and her role is to be Arthur's love impressed. Yeah. I think he pines after her. And, I mean, all the all the males have a particular reason for being there, and she is the woman. I mean, the ship is male. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The doors are male. male. And, and the robot is male. Eddie's <laughs> alternate irritating personality is the female one. Yeah. And like, not only is she saying only she's the woman, but she's introduced as Arthur's the girl that Arthur met at a at a party. Party is Linton. So she can't even be this sort of super intelligent alien woman. She has to just be. A woman from Islington. She can't. She can't be any cooler than the than the, the protagonist. Is it, is it, do you think it's a symptom of like the BBC at the time? And I mean, it's still a symptom of sci-fi in general, right? And fiction in general. Yeah. Um, I think. I, I think. I, I, it just struck me because I've been watching some stuff about the BBC recently, um, and he obviously had quite a lot to do with them. So I mean, it. it 
whether it's directly the BBC or not is kind of besides the point. I don't think you can adequately blame the BBC because if you look at their other great sci-fi of the era, Doctor Who, yeah, while the Doctor is always male, there's a wide variety of yeah. female characters in Doctor Who, and Blake Seven, their other one, has multiple female crew members, a female villain, so they just have some franchises. But taking Doctor Who, now this isn't exclusive, but many of the companions of Doctor Who are younger yeah. than the Doctor. And often are not always a sort of love interest. So that you very rarely get a woman that is equal. I mm. can't think really of any who's sort of more equal, whatever the correct term would be, than the man. The man is always the more clever, he's always the protagonist, he's almost a dominant. I wouldn't blame the BBC in much that it was the BBC's fault, but I think the BBC is probably accurately reflecting how society viewed yeah. women at the time, which is partly the BBC's fault for carrying that on, but I, I would say it probably wasn't caused by the BBC. Um, I was particularly interested in the in the radio show Julian has written out at the start of the second season, Sirius, and uh, she's written out by just saying that she's been forcibly married off, which was a perfectly plausible reason for her to be perfectly to be forced to be married off, but then she's just not mentioned again. It sounds like a more interesting story, right? Saying, yeah. okay, what is this civilization she's... I mean, not only I mean, she's... She's come from Islington in six months. She's the Earth has blown up, and she's been riding around on a space rocket. And now she's been married off to some sort of leader of the galaxy. And actually, that sounds like a really, really interesting story. So while he was at the BBC, Adams wrote Hitchhikers, and he also wrote some of the episodes of Doctor Who. And Danielle, Danielle, you were saying that a lot of the themes and even plot lines of Adams' work you can spot in different places. Yeah, you can. I mean, he he was open about sort of recycling some of the plots that end up being used in the later books and some of the Doctor Who episodes that he wrote. But he uses, because if you read his other work too, like his the Dirk Gently series and that sort of thing, he's always kind of bringing the same ideas and sometimes the same characters or sort of the worlds don't merge but they kind of collide at points. Um, and so yeah, I think. And I think he, he also, but he uses just stuff from his own experience. Like, I don't think you'd blame, I wouldn't blame the BBC for um, the lack of women. I think it probably just didn't occur to him, which is partly a function of the time. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I don't think he was a bad guy, but I think probably just, it, it wouldn't be the sort of thing that would register, I don't think. I think that's, just, that's the problem, though, isn't it? Because I don't think that many people go out of their way to perfectly to do it. To ignore women, to ignore LGBTQ, to ignore non-whites, to ignore non-Western. It's just it's such a symptom of society that they don't realise they're doing it. I mean, do you forgive the... Because the radio show was not intended to be the spark that set ablaze this international, renowned sci-fi franchise. It was a little radio show some guy wrote for home broadcast. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it feels so isolatedly British... Mm-hmm. It's possibly forgivable with the radio show, certainly. I don't. I don't think that just because he was written as a as a small thing, then that means that you shouldn't include people who aren't mm-hmm. white and male. I mean, it's not as if Britain was all white at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, or indeed, ever male. Or male, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I do think his, you know, his worldview is quite, in some ways, restricted to the world he experiences as yeah. a white British man. Yeah. And that's a lot of what actually gets his attention because, you know, he's concerned about things like bureaucracy and sort of this sort of buttoned-up emotional sort of thing that you have going on, like 
Um, I just think probably, I think he was probably a pretty nice guy and was in some ways sort of aware of the world, but not necessarily interested in things outside of his experience. Because um, that's what he spends the most time criticizing. In, but he does he does kind of criticize himself at points. Like, actually, I think my favorite thing he ever wrote was published posthumously in this very short story. In the U.S., it's cookies, but here it would be biscuits. Um, and it's kind of a commentary on British politeness <laughs> and that sort of thing, although I could totally see myself doing this, where he's at a train station, and he kind of goes, he orders, he goes and buys a pack of biscuits, and he goes and sits down at a table, and, set, um, and this other guy is sitting there with a newspaper, and he says, oh, can I sit here? And he says, yeah, that's fine. And he sits down, and they're both sitting there, and all of a sudden the guy with the newspaper just quietly reaches over and opens Douglas Adams' biscuits and eats one. And Douglas Adams doesn't know what to do. He's just sitting there like, oh, this person... Because it's such a violation of the norms of how this stuff works. So he just looks at the man and takes one of his biscuits and eats one, and the man just kind of looks at him. And he says, we go through this whole packet of biscuits where... I take one and we kind of look at each other funny and then he takes one and then the biscuits are gone. And he goes, but then the guy got up with his newspaper and walked away and I saw underneath it was um, his packet of biscuits. So the guy actually, they'd both been having the same experience where they thought some stranger was just reaching over and eating the biscuits. <laughs> so they're kind of having this silent standoff where they're both eating the biscuits. And only Douglas Adams is the one that realizes in the end that, no, he's like... <laughs> so the other guy just has is also walking away with the story of like then this man just reached over and started eating my biscuits and it's such a I mean it is a commentary on like you know you don't say anything and you sort of carry on and you're very you know and just being polite and that sort of thing it's another example of his meaningful to you it does not yes. necessarily have the same perspective for other people yeah, or that exactly. one's small scale with both of them yeah, yeah I, I, th I think the reason I mean it is probably a broader observation, but I think the reason I mentioned the BBC specifically is because the BBC embodies this. Right? Yeah. 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 You know, so yeah. you know, you, around the time you know, you still have strict rules around the way that people are able to pronounce things on, you know, lack of regional accents. Yeah. You know, so I mean, it, it's the height of that kind of comedy of manners, yeah. if you yeah. like. But this is what the seventies. Late seventies. So this is really kind of the end of this kind of era, right? Because it's really the nineties. The appearance of modern comedy in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, the eighties, sorry. Well, late sort of late eighties, early nineties, and you get sort of non-white people representing the news and sort of non perceived pronunciation pronunciation. It's probably almost like a last stand against that kind of. Is that, I mean, parochial stuff. Britishness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that's kind of something that he he, he takes aim at, right? Because I mean, but again, it's, it's it's seriousness that's the problem there. Yeah. I mean, I I genuinely be interested to know because I haven't read much about this how subversive this was because I I get the distinct impression and again this is from many years ago when I did listen to the radio program that that was not the kind of thing that you would have heard on radio at that point. Oh, absolutely not. So it's subversive in the same way, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, is subversive or just a minute, because it's willfully absurd. Do you think that's the reason why it did so well, then, just that it was so obscure? So if it was published today, it might not do as well? Well, it's got the... Any radio show can get by by having beautiful beautiful words, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the, the book and the radio show are beautifully written. But yeah, I imagine the subversiveness of it. Also, I mean, I do think there is, it is somewhat Python-esque. So I think it's actually, I yeah, mean, it is, yeah. 
coming from that tradition. Yeah. And there, there is, I think there's always been a section of society that's been quite, you know, they find that funny. But it's, but it's usually, like with the pythons, they're quite upper-crust, privileged white men as yeah. well. Um, and they do certainly take aim at the society that they live in, but only to an extent, and not to bring to make it more inclusive mm-hmm. necessarily, but to just take shots at the silliness of its world that it takes very seriously. Um, so yeah. I mean, certainly the subversiveness. We we mentioned earlier that most of the characters we follow are rule breakers, mm-hmm. and that feeds back into it is both subversive in and out of character. Mm-hmm. This is a a BBC production doing silly things with a bunch of characters who are in their world of evil bureaucracy and people who blow up planets because the paperwork is slightly wrong. Um, you can see that drawn through as a thread throughout both. Mm-hmm. That, um, although I find it therefore very irritating, so I don't know how heroic he's meant to be with all his mm-hmm. stealing of spaceships. I couldn't work out, right? So he's the president of the galaxy. He's the president of the galaxy, but it's a ceremonial role for idiots. Oh, right, okay. I didn't get to this bit then, because of course I only listened to the radio show and didn't read the whole lot, but... Because I couldn't work out why on earth he'd steal the spaceship. When what? Yeah. If he was the president, he could just How on earth buy he... one. <laughs> why, why, why on earth would a crazed buffoon take his position of president and do something preposterous with it? Mm. How unrealistic I that know, feels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I like Zaffod better than Donald Trump. Do you think Trump yes. has improved by a second head or three arms? Or... I was just about to say my vision of Donald Trump now has two <laughs> There's a two second heads. angrier head. I think, I think, think Zaffod has more redeeming qualities than Donald <laughs> Trump. You know. He's more entertaining to listen to. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. I enjoyed listening to him. I wouldn't mind hanging out with Zaffod for like an afternoon. Yeah. But you have some fun, right? He's yeah. very devoted. He, he grew that extra limb, four trillion. Right? Yes. Yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> so we've got through almost all of this without mentioning, ah, 42. Uh, and D- Danielle commented that uh, maybe there's not much to say about 42, and I think she's right in that sci-fi has this weird mimetic quality where something becomes the line you quote, and it's not even that. So Portal had the cake is a lie, um, which was not only transversely overplayed, but is of course actually wrong. Spoiler alert, there is a cake in Portal. That's the entire joke. And I find it weird that the memes we get out of sci-fi are not important to the sci-fi itself. I mean, except, I guess, live long and prosper, but I wonder why 42 became the thing everyone quotes about Hitchhikers. Because it's absurd. You know, the answer to life the universe right. and everything is 42. It, I mean, it's not, I mean, ultimately in the book, it's it's not the hugely important thing, right? But the point is, it's the answer to life, the universe yeah. and everything. So, I mean, it is ostensibly relevant, just like the cake being a lie is ostensibly relevant, even though it's wrong. It's a very quick way of saying that if that's the answer to life, the universe, and everything, what the answer really is is that it's all absurd. Yeah. You know, that there's this not some of This is the point, right? If he'd come up with the real answer, it would have to be something really soppy, right? About how, you know, the answer to life is love or something, which would totally go against the rest of the book. Well, of course, in the fifth book, he actually attempts to do that, and there's the God's final message to his creation. And it's, we apologise for the inconvenience. Okay, I, I think that might about wrap, wrap, wrap it up for the year. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you in January with something. Uh, finally, I'd like to give a shout-out to James, who left us a review on iTunes. Uh, thanks, James. Yay. Thanks, James. <laughs> see ya. Bye. See ya. Bye.